Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Daily Discoveries. This week, we're going to be discussing a article about nanozymes again, called Machine Learning Guided Discovery of Superoxide Dismutase Nanozymes for Androgenetic Alopecia. And this is out of the Zoo Group, out of the Jindao University in China. So this article is quite interesting because it uses machine learning to kind of just pump a bunch of information into these algorithms that machine learning uses, and then get out uh, a nanozyme that they can use to treat a very common disease. But basically, first, I'll just quickly talk about androgenic alopecia, which is a um, hair loss disease. Uh, it basically affects 80, or up to 80% of men and 50% of women. So it's like, you know, classical hair loss. And it is caused by reactive oxygen species that dysregulate hair follicles. This can have, this can be caused by many different things, such as genetic, hormonal, or environmental factors. But it is caused in a specific type of cells called dermal papilla cells. And the oxidative stress that is causing these cells overrides innate antioxidant defense mechanisms by an SOD enzyme, or also called a superoxide dismutase, which basically is meant to disrupt these oxygen radicals from damaging these skin cells. But basically all this oxidative stress causes apoptosis to these cells. And these superoxide dismutase enzymes are meant to prevent that from happening. However, what this group has then tried to do is to create a nanozyme that is going to mimic the function of this sod enzyme. I was going to say, I think this paper is cool because in the previous nanozyme paper we talked about, it was all about creating these free radical species. And, you know, this, a very different approach is, okay, so we can create it, but also can we quench them? Like, can we get rid of these potentially dangerous species hanging out in our cells, especially apparently in our hair follicles? Right. Before it was used as a weapon. Now it's it's a problem to ourselves. We have to kind of get rid of them. So yeah. So I think that's kind of a a cool um, just variation on these nanozymes. They're they're very interesting as we learn more and more. So these sod enzymes are a family of metalloenzymes that catalyze the disputations of oxygen radicals to less harmful species. And oxygen radicals are usually like oxygen with one or you know, two oxygen molecules or two oxygen atoms as in one molecule with one extra atom. That's usually the most common electron. Oh, what did I say? Extra atom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one extra electron. And these sod enzymes turn them into either hydrogen peroxide or just b- back to more stable oxygen. So it doesn't cause damage to cells. Previous studies indicate that inorganic nanomaterials can scavenge these oxygen radicals. And scavenge just means kind of binding to these oxygen radicals or or turning them into something else so that they are not causing damage or disease or yeah, that's basically what scavenge means. And these nanozymes are typically low cost and high stability and high recyclability. And that's why they could be promising in this sense. And what this group went to do was use machine learning, which is like a type of artificial intelligence to develop these nanozymes. 
And machine learning, uh, it basically has like exceptional performance in processing massive data efficiently in a variety of fields. And it's linked to the discovery of lots of new materials by learning from a lot of data that is just thrown into the system and kind of using different algorithms and different procedures. You teach the machine and it learns from all this data that, it, it, that you're putting into tons of tons of data. And it learns through patterns and stuff like that and is able to tell you a specific outcome that you are looking for. And in this sense, it is a specific combination of three atoms. Anyway, another article by Gao et al. actually suggested that sod-like activity of nanomaterials is observed by transition metal thiophosphates of different atom combinations and found that the activity is observed as the transition metal of this enzyme is oxidized once. As in like the transition metal and then there's a thiophosphate added to that in different combinations of different amounts of phosphorus and sulfur molecules. And so they were using machine learning to try to figure out this perfect ratio of phosphorus atom and sulfur atom, and then a, a specific transition metal that they can use for this enzyme. The data that they threw into this machine or this algorithm was crystallographic and project material databases. And they used like specific correlation algorithms to include parameters such as volume, formation energy, density, density band gap, um, space group, coordination number, and electronegativity. And these were like the inputs. And then the output that they were trying to achieve from that was the Gibbs free energy, which I'm finally glad that they pumped into us during Gen Chem. Because uh, Gibbs free energy uh, basically is just how much energy it requires for a reaction to happen. So in this sense, it, they actually used three different Gibbs free energies for three different types of reactions, stabilizing these different reactive oxygen species. And so you, you basically wanted a more negative Gibbs free energy. And the enzyme or the combination of atoms that would give you the more negative Gibbs free energy would eventually be the top candidate. And so they used these descriptors and ran seven different models. I'm not going to talk about all of them, but after each model predicted a certain compound, they compared these values to test set values, which were in like an eight to two ratio. Yeah, so I think the data set, um, the train set versus the test set is that you had for every, basically you had eight train sets and two test sets. Yeah. So but why do you... the yeah. So you're going to train, I think you train your, your model on the train set. So you're, you're basically like teaching your model how to use this data more or less. Exactly. But I was confused, then, like, where are they getting the test set from? I, well, I think the test, the test set is just, I think they're all kind of the same. So you have like this big data, right? You have all this data and yeah. you divide it up. And so some of it is like, okay, we know that this input should give this output. So let's just like tweak things until we, we think we have a model that's going to depict like, Basically, the, the model knows what the output is already, yeah. right? Yeah. And so then it's tweaking all of its, whatever it's doing. I think generally we consider machine learning to be kind of like this black box where you just put all your data into it and you're like, <laughs> you well, know you have a desired input and desired output and then you just, yeah, the middle. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. the middle part is a little bit, we don't entirely know what's going on. But then on the test set, I think we know what the output should be and the machine yes. doesn't. 
So I think we're able to then it's like, okay, here's what's now, you know, this is, this is the big test. If we give you this data, are you going to give us reliable outputs based on what we know? So I think that's the train versus the test set. And I think the model that they found best suited for this kind of describes exactly what you just said about the black box, because the model that they, that worked best for them was called random forest. And then the combination, finally, they arrived at a combination of one transition metal and a phosphorus and sulfur combination that led to the lowest delta G. And that was a manganese compound with a phosphorus and then three sulfurs. They made this manganese diophosphate, or I'm just going to call it a nanozyme from now on. They made the nanozyme from, uh, they synthesized it through chemical vapor transport and they used manganese, red phosphorus, and sulfur powder, and they kind of created this um, nano sheet out of the nanozyme. Tested scavenging ability, and they tested it with four different types of typical free radicals that you'll see. Typical, I'm not sure exactly what they mean by typical, but at least one of them was just a regular oxygen radical. The other ones, I'm not sure. Or one of them was actually hydroxide radical as well. And then there's two other ones. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because they have like the hydroxyl radical and the superoxide anion radical. And these are just common radicals that like you see in the environment. Yeah. However, right. I had never heard of the ABTS radical cation or yeah. the DPPH. Right. So, but are those even in like the near the dermal tissue where they would be using it? Or are they just using random radicals that are common? They might be like common radicals that you get in experimental results. I don't know. Either way, they compared these radicals. They compared the activity of the nanozyme versus a naturally occurring <laughs> sod enzyme. Where they got this naturally occurring sod enzyme is clear. What <laughs> or is that unclear? I mean, but um, yeah. And in all four of these different reactive oxygen species, the manganese uh, nanozyme outperformed the sod enzyme quite drastically and it yeah. also had a very low ic50 which means or like lower than they expected like they were very surprised by that i think and a low ic50 basically just means like when half of the reactive oxygen species have bound to this nanozyme or have reacted with it that concentration and it was a very low concentration which means that you don't need very much nanozyme in order to for it to react with these reactive oxygen species, which is great. I thought it was funny. So they, as you as we mentioned, like they chose two common radicals and two radicals that I had at least I had not really heard that much of before. And the common radicals, the ones that are you know commonly seen, it was actually not a significant difference. Like it did outperform it, but not significantly. But on all the ones that I'd never heard of before, <laughs> where yeah. you saw a significant difference in. <laughs> Yes. I was like, oh, I wonder if it's because it's not the sod's native substrate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> this is very true. It's only outperforming it on the weird radicals. Then they also tested the catalytic activity of this nanozyme, and they were able to show that it is actually quite recyclable, and that after five times of being used five times, this uh, nanozyme only went down in activity by 20%. Um, they also talked about 
the optimal temperatures at which it performs and the optimal pH, just like a regular enzyme. It has an optimal temperature and pH. And this for this one, it's between 20 and 60 degrees Celsius, which is great because body temperature is 37. But then the pH that's optimal for is 8.4, which is slightly higher than the 7.4 of the human bodies. But hopefully it's it works at 7.4 as well. Well, it does, as we'll soon see. And then finally, we bring this nanozyme into actual biological testing. And the way they did this was that initially they um, they incubated the nanozyme with different concentrations with a human skin fibroblast, which is a type of human skin cell. And they saw that no significant difference was observed between not adding it and adding it. And they meant like no significant difference in um, the, I, I, I don't, they didn't actually say what, but I assume they're talking about the confluency. Yeah. Oh, I assume that yeah. confluency was not affected by adding manganese. So the safety of it is good. And so after that, they went on to test with the reactive oxygen species in this. And the way they did that was that they labeled these reactive oxygen species with fluorescence. And after adding the nanozyme to these cells that were now fluorescing with reactive oxygen species, where they added the nanozyme, the fluorescence went down because the nanozyme successfully reacted with the reactive oxygen species, making them fluoresce less. And then they created this, after uh, figuring out that it works in cells and that it's safe in cells, they went on to create this micro needle patch yeah, I think the idea is that you're actually able to really get it into the follicle versus like, I think if you just would apply it topically, you may not be able to get it into the needed yep. area. And they kind of showed a, a cool figure of it poking into a cell and dispersing the nanozyme. But they first tested the effectiveness of the needle by doing like these pressure tests to make sure that it actually pierces the skin cells and then releases and delivers the nanozyme into the cells, and this was successful. So then they applied it to mice, where one group got what I assume is some sort of competitor or some sort of R, like treatment that is already in the market, or maybe it's about to be, or something like this. It's called my or minoxidil, and this minoxidil was applied to the mice every day for 13 days. And then there was a control mice where only testosterone was applied. And sorry, testosterone was also applied along with the minoxidil. And then the uh, nanozyme was added every other day for 11 days. Not sure why it wasn't added the same amount as the minoxidil, but that is what they said. And the, uh, the nanozyme was also added along with the testosterone. And it was uh, reported to hardly remain in the skin heart, liver, spleen, lungs, or kidney tissues after 14 days, suggesting su sufficient metabolism. And basically the, the mice that they have a picture and the control, obviously the hair growth remained. I mean, there was like a bald patch on the mice back. And after 13 days, there was almost no difference in the bald patch. However, they did say after 28 days that the hair did grow back in the control but that's not on the image. And then for the, the nanozyme, where they added the nanozyme, the hair is like pretty much grows completely back in the bald patch. And so it also looks, it appears to in the minoxidil, but they, they say that 
both the hair follicles that grew back in the control after 28 days and the hair follicles that grew back in the minoxidil are much thinner and more dispersed, not as like, not as thick and not as densely packed as the were the ones that were on the back of the mouse that got the nanozyme. And yeah, that's that's basically what they proved, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, my first thought After is fourteen days. My dad have hair soon. Yeah, two weeks from now. <laughs> two weeks from now, if I start giving this to my dad, <laughs> is he no longer going to be bald? <laughs> I was wondering for this treatment to be effective, would you have to keep reapplying these microneedle patches over time or is it just one time for the area and then it like stays that's or I mean really like a couple of times? Yeah, no, that's a really good question because are these, for example, they said in the, right in the beginning, they talked about that this alopecia type of alopecia is created or is can, can be genetic or hormonal or be caused by environmental factors. So if it's genetic, then aren't these reactive oxygen species just going to be created again? And then maybe you have to apply these microneedle patches. And what I was thinking about, again. like what you reminded me of is that does this only work like once you've already lost your hair, you can't really do it before you lose your hair. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, I guess I don't know enough about hair loss, really. That's not me neither. My, my area of expertise. Yeah, I think that's a great question as far as the actual applicability of it. Like, are you going to have to have regular... You have to wait until you get bald and then do it, yeah. And, and do, you... do you have to have regular, like, microneedle patches every other week or... Yeah, but know? maybe you can just, like, sleep with them on your head or something. I don't know. But then do you have yeah. to wait until you lose your hair again and then apply them? I don't yeah, know. I don't... These are all... I don't know. <laughs> all questions I don't know that... Yeah, these are, all, these are all good questions. Um... <laughs> that cannot be answered by this article at this moment. No, yeah, I think it's a it's a really interesting different application of the microneedles or the nanozymes. What I thought was really cool is in the machine learning portion before this, like before this paper, really we didn't know that much about the principles of these radical quenching nanozymes. Um, like what actually is driving them as far as things that we can control? Like what variables can we optimize for? And they're basically able to look for variables in like what parts of the data contain variables independent of one another. So what are all of the important factors basically? And they're able to determine a bunch of new ones from the machine learning, which I thought was really cool, you know, going forward as far as rational design. So instead of just like throwing a large data set at something, you, you sit and you think about it and you're like, Hmm, how can we optimize for these conditions? Why did this work? <laughs> yeah, like why? Like, why this is this work? one better than the other one? Yeah, so I thought that was really cool that they were able to determine some of those new parameters. And then from that, can you make it even better than the machine, or is the machine has it maximized it? Ooh, I think it's hard to beat machines, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, is there even point a point in finding those? Well, I guess maybe for other purposes, but yeah, it's cool that they can find those variables. I do agree. Okay, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to Daily Discoveries. 